This is Jen Taylor Skinner. I want to tell you about a great new podcast, The Election Ride Home. Someone's going to challenge Donald Trump for the White House. The Election Ride Home is a podcast dedicated to figuring out who that someone, or maybe even multiple someones, will end up being. Every day at 5 p.m. Eastern, veteran journalist and This American Life contributor Chris Higgins catches you up on what happened on the campaign trail. Who's up? Who's down? What issues are getting traction? What do the polls say? It's a 15 to 20 minute show that keeps track of all the latest and summarizes it so you don't have to nervously refresh your web browser 12 times a day. It's like TLDR as a service. So if you want to catch up on what you've missed on your way home, search your podcast app and subscribe to the Election Ride Home podcast. I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Emily May, the co-founder and executive director of Hollaback. Isn't that nice? Emily May is the co-founder and executive director of Hollaback, and that's a global organization and movement with the goal of ending public harassment. The org was founded following a viral incident in New York City in 2005. A young woman named Tao Nguyen was riding the R train in New York when a man sat across from her and staring at her started to masturbate. Nguyen took out her phone, snapped a photo of the man and posted it on the internet. The whole thing went viral and that was the beginning of this people-led movement to end harassment. Here is Emily May describing Hollaback's mission and how and why it was started. So Hollaback is a movement to end harassment in all of its forms, and we started it in 2005, Um, and it was really started with this idea of this harassment that we face on the street all day long. You know, why isn't anybody doing anything about it? You know, when it comes to harassment in the workplace, there's people who stand up and take action and do stuff. There's processes and plans and HR manuals, but when it comes to sexual harassment on the street, nobody does anything. So we thought, you know, wouldn't it be great if we started to do something and we were inspired by a young woman named Tao Nguyen who was riding the New York City subway when an older man sat down across from her and pulled out his penis and started to masturbate. And Tao pulled out her 2005 flip phone cell phone camera um, and took his picture with the idea of taking it to the police. But when she took it to the police, they more or less ignored her. They were like, he's already seven or eight stops away. There's nothing that we can do. And so Tao took that photo and she put it on Flickr, the photo sharing website, and um, it made it to the front cover of the New York Daily News, which is our local tabloid here. And it seemed like everybody had a story or knew somebody that had a story. My boss had seen that exact guy masturbating on the subway in front of her. And so we just thought, what if we did what Tao did? And we started to document our experiences as a way of shining a light on what was going on. I mean, what stood out to me the most about the story is that she expected that the police would do something. That doesn't surprise me, actually. I mean, they didn't act because generally these things are considered unremarkable. You know, perhaps I'm jaded, but I would not have expected the police to do anything about that. But then I thought, you know, that's really sad because we've conditioned ourselves to believe that this is the reality of being a woman in public. And of course, the people who should be there to protect us 
aren't. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that was 2005, 2018. We do do sensitivity trainings with the NYPD, but look, they're not nearly as comprehensive enough. We still haven't convinced them to have um, those sensitivity trainings in their boot camp when they're onboarding new police officers. Um, And the reality is, is that a lot of these reports still aren't taken seriously. And even worse, um, you know, they can be met with skepticism when people don't believe people or they think that they just need to buck up or deal with it. Yeah. The thing that I love about Hollaback is that most of the work that I've seen around street harassment has been either academic or legislative. And the U.S., of course, has been slower to enact legislation to tackle this. And I know in other countries they have, but Hollaback does both the research and the actual tangible groundwork. So that's what I really love about Hollaback. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, it's interesting from the legislative perspective because I think globally, I think people's first instinct when it comes to street harassment is, oh, let's criminalize it, let's criminalize it. And um, at Hollaback, we actually don't endorse increasing criminalization around street harassment for a few reasons. You know, one, and, and I think the big one is the way in which particularly men of color, become hyper-criminalized in these scenarios, that laws like this are used and targeted at them. And I think that there is a tremendous amount of uh, hesitation in communities of color to go to police with stories like this because of that um, and because of, you know, the, the way in which they're implemented is quite racist. And then I think there's also, um, on top of that, just the practicality, right? Like the practicality of a viewer to go and report every single incident of harassment to the police, you would be at the police station all day long. Like you would, you wouldn't be able to have a job. And, you know, people, when people talk about solutions to street harassment, they don't talk about wanting to spend all day at the police station or even interfacing with the police at all. Like they just talk about it wanting to stop. And I think that's where those cultural solutions start to show up, right? Yeah, that makes total sense. I hadn't actually thought about it that way because in some cultures, you know, creating laws may work. You know, cultures that don't have these disparities in, you know, policing in, you know, certain neighborhoods and in certain neighborhoods where there's, you know, differences in race, they may not have that. Like I'm thinking of, I think Japan has laws, you know, of har- against harassing women on subways. And I think maybe in France they have laws, but, mm-hmm. you they know, just they probably- France, yeah. Yeah, did they? And so that that may work there, possibly, but they don't have also the the disparities in policing. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the uh, the other thing I think when we look towards solutions and we look towards culture change, um, the New York City Council has done some really interesting things recently where they have been passing laws that require employers who have more than 15 employees to get sexual harassment training that includes bystander intervention tactics. So if you're not familiar with it, bystander intervention is something that we do a lot of because it's about um, getting communities to stand up for each other. It's about doing something when you see harassment happening and doing it in a way that that's safe, you know, that doesn't involve putting yourself at risk. Um, and they also just passed, are looking at passing a law for nightclubs where security guards and bartenders um, would be required to get that same sexual harassment, bystander intervention training, uh, which I think is just such a such a boon because, you know, just because you're a security guard or, you know, a bartender doesn't mean that you are briefed in, in how to handle these incidences with sensitivity. And we know that bars have a tremendous amount of sexual harassment happening in them. So, you know, I think, I think broadly, like 
you know, society is moving in the right way and we want to see more and more people get training and awareness on this kind of stuff. Yeah. So if you if you don't use laws or legislation, how do you plan to curb it? Yeah. I think that movements really are energized when people share their story. And we have seen that certainly this year with Me Too. And Hollaback has always been collecting stories of harassment since way back in the day when we, you know, started to model ourselves after um, Tal Nguyen and, and her incredible story. And then I think you start to really see measurable social change and impact when you have local on the ground leaders. And that those are our leaders that we've trained all around the world. Another big social change lever that we have been looking at and examining is, is this idea of training, right? And I think developing a deeper sense of what sexual harassment is, is critical. And how do you show up for each other? You know, some people might say, well, it's really obvious, like how you would show up for your friend or your, you know, family member or whatever it is. Um, but for a lot of us, it's not really obvious, you know, and we think that we have to strap on superhero spandex and swoop down and beat everybody up if we're going <laughs> to effectively intervene. Um, and that's just not the case. So we've been doing a tremendous amount of those pieces as well. And, you know, with the, with an issue, particularly like what we call street harassment, we've also taken the tack of looking at research because it's so incompletely researched compared to things like sexual harassment in the workplace. Um, and it's so prevalent and it so disproportionately impacts young folks. And so I think figuring out how to get more data on this to show people that this happens, it matters. Um, and we've seen just, you know, I've been doing this for 13 years now, believe it or not. Um, and we've seen the tides shift so significantly on this issue during that time. Um, it's just, it's been incredible. It's been incredible. I grew up like watching, you know, and, and looking and studying at the movements in the 60s and 70s, thinking like, you know, what it, what like that is possibly going to happen for my generation. And I think, you know, I have witnessed it firsthand when it comes to this issue of sexual harassment during my lifetime. It has been a tremendous title shift. And that's on the back of the tremendous title shift that happened in the 80s and 90s around, you know, Anita Hill. I think, you know, our generation has, has built off of that in a meaningful way and been able able to take it to the next level. No, you're right. I mean, data is scarce on this. When I started doing research for this episode, and particularly when I started to look for women's accounts of their experiences of public harassment, I stumbled across the work of Fiona Vera Gray, and she wrote the book, The Right Amount of Panic. And for her research, she talked to many women who had instances of street harassment, whose stories were told in her book. They recount incidents of street harassment starting as early as age seven. Age seven. Yeah. Yeah, it does start as young as seven. Um, and, you know, and we see that at least 50% of folks have been harassed by the time they're 12. Um, and the vast majority of young women have been harassed around the age of 16, 17. And when we think about this issue, so often, like, you know, all of our sort of stereotypes like pop up and all of our myths start to pop up. And this idea that you're only getting harassed on the street because you're, you know, wearing a slutty outfit and you know, all this stuff, yeah. or you're out at the wrong time and night. Meanwhile, you know, that's not what the data shows. The data shows these are like kids trying to go to school, trying to go to the pool. You know what I mean? This is not, right. um, this is not, you know, somebody's wild night out. Although even if it was somebody's wild night out, they deserve to get there safely. But, you know, I think, I think the data in this area really shows a different picture than what our assumptions are. This falls so neatly into our rape culture, the culture of blaming women for what happens to them, you know, which is absurd because there are very few crimes where we actually blame the victim so consistently. 
But in my own life, you know, I remember being warned as early as age 11 or 12 that, you know, Jen, your skirt is too short or that top is too tight, mm-hmm. you know? And, and and my intent was not to seduce some stranger or some jerk who slowed down his car to harass me on, you know, my way to band practice. You know, I was merely thinking, you know, I wanted to dress like my favorite star. It was a very innocent choice. So, you know, we start to internalize that blame really early on. And it often begins with people who love us, you know, sisters and mothers and, you know, older women. Yeah. And you see that institutionalized in the form of dress codes for, you know, kids in elementary school and middle school. Um, This idea that if you just wear the right thing, that it'll, you know, stop the predatory behavior. Um, And it's the wrong message to be sending because ultimately it doesn't matter what you wear, you should be able to walk down the street and feel safe and confident. And, you know, and that goes for mini skirts, it goes for burkas, it goes for everything in between. Um, and I think that our tendency to police what women wear is ridiculous in light of, you know, really looking at the root issue and the real problem. site leaders in cities all over the world. What is their role? So they lead the movement in their own communities. So they define the problem um, and the what the solution means. And that looks like different things in different parts of the world. I would say that everywhere we've ever launched a site, you know, there are questions as to the legitimacy of whether or not this is a significant problem. And and everywhere, you know, our site leaders are sort of having to go against the grain and, and repeat ad nauseum, like, this is a problem. This happens. This is significant, right? And so they've done everything from um, trainings. We teach them how to do our bystander intervention training and adapt it to their local context. They have done work in, in schools. They have done um, public events like rallies and protests. They have also done research in their communities, looking at the extent of this problem and trying to use that research to demonstrate um, the need for action in their communities. They've also done fun things like art projects. Um, For example, you know, public street art or something we call chalk walks, where you just get sidewalk chalk out and um, write messages in public spaces about why harassment isn't okay. So it, it really, you know, it varies on the location. It varies on the leadership in that location, what type of tax they take, what they feel like is going to resonate most or their community needs most to address harassment. Uh, But, you know, I think that resoundingly people are are telling us that they're hitting a lot of a lot of walls, you know, that there's a lot of resistance to this idea that, you know, harassment isn't okay. So I want to talk about a study that your org conducted where you looked at the demographics and the socioeconomic status of the typical harasser and their targets. What is the profile of a typical harasser and the environment that street harassment usually thrives in? So we have seen that harassment is more prevalent in high density areas. So, for example, um, if you are going to get harassed of one out of 50 men passing you on the street, it's going to take a lot longer to do that in a Walmart parking lot than it is in the middle of Times Square. And, you know, and, and population density does seem to be the number one indicator that we see for harassment. You know, you have to see people out on the street in order to get street harassed. Um, 
but beyond that, I, I think there is there is no consistency in terms of who street harassers are. Um, you know, they cross lines of race and class and identity. And we see harassment happening in rural locations. We see it happening in urban locations. Um, so the idea that there's one type of, of street harasser um, hasn't really played out in, in our experience. Yeah, there isn't one type of street harasser, but there was a study, and I think this was one of your studies that showed that it does affect people from lower socioeconomic statuses more. And I think that has probably to do with the the density of the areas that they possibly live in rather than, you know, the type of people who are harassing. I just want to make that clear. Yeah, yeah. So folks from, you know, lower income backgrounds, regardless of where they're living, they have a, a number of challenges that make them more predisposed to experiencing street harassment, namely around the types of, you know, transportation that they have access to, right? If you are a Hollywood superstar or a CEO of a corporation or whatever, you know, you're going to be taking um, cars, you know, wherever you go. You know, you're not going to spend a lot of time um, alone on the street walking home at night um, or alone, even alone on the street walking to work, right? Like you're going to be very tightly ushered from point A to point B. And even people who aren't at that level but have significant financial resources um, don't have to take public transportation, don't find themselves walking from point A to point B, the same prevalence that people who are lower income do. So we do see that data, you know, certainly, certainly playing out there. Yes, that actually aligns with my own experience. I noticed that the more I became quote unquote grown up, mm-hmm. you know, in college and shortly afterwards, you know, you live where you can. And I didn't always have access to a car, you know, but as we mature, we gradually get better jobs and can afford to live in less densely populated neighborhoods. You know, perhaps the job that you have has a carpool. I mean, I can remember my very first job out of college. I suddenly was surrounded by people who were slightly better off than I was, and I could carpool to work. I didn't have to take public transportation, and I could eventually afford my own car. And as those small shifts in my personal life happened, I did notice that I was shielded to some extent from street harassment. Yeah. Your study also looks at a neighborhood's walkability score, and it compares it to the instances of harassment. So what's the relationship there? Yeah, you know, the more people who are walking down the street, the more likely there is for street harassment to happen. Um, And so, you know, in New York City, for example, we see areas like Wall Street, Times Square, Midtown, you know, areas that have high population density. They tend to be transportation hubs, lots of people coming into the city, um, more people, more street harassment, right? And we see that play out in in lower denser areas as well, but it's in, in technicolor here in New York City where we have so many folks. So the answer to this may be obvious, but street harassment is, of course, on the continuum of rape culture. What is the specific link to rape culture? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, street harassment is on a spectrum of, you know, gender-based violence. And, you know, and I think that rape culture creates a culture where rape is okay, where sexual harassment is okay, sexual assault is okay, sexual innuendo, sexual jokes, uh, you know, um, everyday sexism, all of this is okay, right? And so when we have a culture when all of these behaviors are okay, it leads us to have more of it because there's nobody standing up and saying, actually, this isn't okay, except the reality is, is that now people are coming forward and 
courts and saying, now this isn't okay very loudly. Um, I think that is then having the effect of, you know, people who were a lot of folks, a lot of regular everyday folks who are committing some of these like lower level behaviors, maybe are waking up and being like, oh, wait a minute, like this is not okay. I think there's another population of people though that are looking at the Me Too movement and, and it's in some ways resisting it and becoming emboldened and saying like, I don't care what, you know, what they want. I'm going to harass anyway. I'm going to do this anyway. Like this is who I am. This is what I want to do. Nobody can tell me what to do. So it, you know, with every sort of step, step forward, I think that we have in society, there's always going to be resistance to it. It's never going to be an easy path. Um, but I think all in all, um, you know, we are moving in dramatically, you know, the, the right direction. And I've just seen such significant progress on this issue over the past 13 years. But, you know, it also seems like all of the work and, you know, most of, if not all of the burden of tackling this has fallen on the shoulders of women and the shoulders of victims and, you know, targets of the harassment, which is also very typical of rape culture. So how do you tackle this from the harasser's end? You know, it feels like women and victims are always doing the heavy lifting. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's all that, you know, hold your keys in your hand and check under your car before you get in it. And, you know, make sure you have a buddy who knows where you are and you've got location on your phone and you've got this app downloaded and that app downloaded. And I think that is puts tremendous pressure on you know, people who experience a lot of harassment, especially women, um, especially LGBTQ folks to, you know, do the right thing. Um, and the reality is, is what I see is people who experience a lot of harassment have a strong tendency to blame themselves, um, regard, you know, and it, and it's because society's blaming them and society's telling them here, you take these ABCD steps and you will not get harassed. And that's just not real. They get harassed anyway. And so, I've seen like those posters that are like, hey, let's not tell, you know, women what to do to prevent rape. Let's tell men not to rape, right? I think yeah. the same thing applies applies here. Um, what I would say as an iteration to that is not just telling people not to sexually harass one another, but I would say, you know, for that all of us have a responsibility to stand up and to have a response when we witness harassment happening. Um, even as little as a knowing glance can reduce trauma for the person who's harassed, but intervening in different ways whether you're, you know, starting a conversation with the person who is being harassed, whether you are creating a distraction, whether you're directly, you know, talking to and attempting to de-escalate the person doing the harassing, right? All of these kinds of things set a boundary that help um, folks to really reclaim their space. And I think it's it's those type of gestures are what is going to shift the culture and start to make this less okay. Um, because those are the interventions in, in, in the moment, right? It's not just the stories. That's where the rubber hits the road and we start taking action. And that's action that all of us can take in in some way, shape or form. Yeah. You know, because I, I, I've been street harassed, of course, but, you know, I have no idea how I would convince a chronic cat caller that, you know, what they're doing is wrong. Right. But, yeah. you know, what, <laughs> but no, what I feel saying, you on that. And the reality is, is that the, um, you know, <laughs> it's not when somebody's actively harassing you, it's not the best educational moment. Right. <laughs> like all of us, myself included, um, have this temptation to be like a, a one-woman street harassment educational machine. Um, and it's just not, it's not a great learning moment for them. Um, however, you know, you can still set that boundary in, in different ways or, you know, have people who are around you set it for you. And even just sort of setting that boundary and acknowledging that, you know, this isn't okay, this isn't acceptable is 
um, is significant and does, does I think, show long-term impact. Right. I see what you're saying. You're saying like if more people take an active role in intervening in these kind of non-confrontational ways, it will send the message and change the culture mm -hmm. to the people who have a tendency to harass, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> I was just going to say, like, I can't imagine myself, you know, saying, excuse me, sir, you know, what you just said made me feel objectified. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but I mean, you can say like, hey, like, you know, stop asking me for my number. Um, you're making me feel uncomfortable, you know, or, or, you know, stop asking me for my number. That's inappropriate. Right. Um, saying what you want them to stop being really clear about that. And then saying, you know, it's inappropriate or it makes me uncomfortable or whatever it is, I think is, you know, is important. The trick there is, is that then you just don't escalate it, you know, when they're like, Oh, well, you're ugly anyway, which is like usually what they tell me. Um, <laughs> then, yeah. um, <laughs> um, then, it's like, you know, you kind of fight your desire to want to have like a witty comeback and give them the finger um, for no other reason than just, you know, your your own personal safety and the fact that you're probably not going to convince them of much at that point. They're, they're already pretty pissed off for being called out. Right. You know, that reminds me of another link this has to rape culture because often women are targets because, you know, men feel rejected. And, you know, and I remember one of the scariest incidents that I had was when I was waiting tables in a restaurant, a restaurant full of people, a client, you know, who was unhappy about not getting my attention as his waitress followed me down the long, you know, empty corridor and was asking for my number. And, you know, when I said, you know, again, you know, no, I'm, I'm not interested, you know, just kept following me, you know, no one was around and then got really angry. And I was really afraid mm -hmm. for my safety. Mm -hmm. You know, he was angry and saying, you know, you think you're too good for me and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And this was a really nice restaurant. <laughs> You know, so this guy, you know, he wasn't, you know, someone that you would you would expect. I mean, I don't know. That's probably a, a stereotype that I don't want to perpetuate, but I didn't expect it in this space, at least. Right. Yeah. So, you know, that's one of the risks that women take when they when they do talk back, you know, and, and speak up for themselves. So we can't let that mm -hmm. win. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really real. Right. And that's why, you know, a lot of people, we do trainings on how to respond to harassment and, um, you know, and a lot of people, uh, when we first started doing them would come, up, come up to me and say like, you know what, sometimes I, I feel like I, I just need to smile and pretend like it's okay. Or even say thank you and like keep going. And, you know, is that okay? And like the reality is yes. Like your number one priority um, is your own safety. And so if that means that you need to fake it like it's okay, that's okay. You know, and, and we've re really reworked that training to emphasize that and, and underscore the fact that like you have to trust your instincts if you don't feel safe or even if you you know, feel plenty safe. You just honestly don't have the emotional bandwidth to deal with it at that juncture. That's okay because it's not your responsibility to single-handedly end harassment. It's their responsibility not to harass you. Is there a model anywhere in the world where they've had some success, right, with curbing street harassment that we can use to follow here? Um, you know, I think the stuff that we've seen around the world has really been echoed in work that Hollaback has been doing. You know, we've seen success with um, research globally, really shining a light on this issue. We've seen tremendous success with people coming forward and sharing their stories, especially, you know, as the internet has sort of grown up in tandem with the, the movement to end harassment. We've seen a tremendous amount of stories shared online as well, which give a certain degree of protection and anonymity for the folks telling 
telling them. You know, we have also seen a lot of promise in education and, and training programs around the world, particularly, you know, this idea of bystander intervention and what we do to take care of each other. Um, so no, no, no culture, no country has come up with a perfect response, uh, a perfect solution to street harassment. I think if they had, we would all be trying to scale it. But it's because the problem is has so many heads. It, it is such a complex problem that really it feeds into, you know, uh, racism and sexism and homophobia and ableism, right? All of these things, right, then create this problem of, of street harassment. And so I think that it's a huge, hairy challenge to solve. And I think ultimately, you know, we chip away a little bit here. We chip away a little bit there. We, you know, we, we throw the spaghetti at the wall and, and we see what works. But we know that one thing that works is when people stand up, step up, speak out and take care of each other. Well, Emily May, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Pleasure. Pleasure.